Hi everybody, my name is Roy and today we are going to finish studying the life of Joseph which will actually also finish out the rest of the book of Genesis. So last week we left off with Joseph in charge of all Egypt, guiding the nation through a famine with God's help and bringing all of his brothers and the rest of his family to live with him under Pharaoh's blessing. Everything seems awesome, except it's not. Because the story of Joseph is not just the story of one man overcoming the odds through trusting in God, it's also the story of reconciliation and restoration for the rest of the brothers who had mistreated Joseph, who were ready to kill him, just kind of barely decided to sell him into slavery instead. For years, they covered it up by telling their dad, Jacob, that Joseph was out and he got attacked by wild animals and died. And Jacob grieved for a long time for the loss of his favorite son, while Joseph went from slave to prisoner and eventually the prime minister of all Egypt. And now circumstances have brought Joseph and his brothers together again. It's, it's a chance for them to reconcile. But that reconciliation turns out to be kind of a long and messy process that takes up the last nine chapters of the book of Genesis. Now, of course, it makes sense that it wouldn't have been a quick and clean reunion. Imagine if you were Joseph and somebody had wronged you that badly and you were to see them years later, having somehow climbed out of the pit of despair to reach success while they're now the ones in need and at your mercy. How would you treat them? And if you were one of the brothers who conspired against Joseph and covered that up for years, but one day you meet that victim alive and well standing before you, what, if anything, would you say? Let's keep those questions in mind as we read the text. We pick up the story after Joseph has risen to power in Egypt. He's the prime minister. He's been wisely ruling the country, storing up the extra grain. And now that the prophesied famine has hit, the whole world is traveling to Egypt to buy grain, including Joseph's family, the sons of Jacob. Reading from Genesis chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for fear that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, uh, We, your servants, we're twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So Joseph sees his brothers and he knows they don't recognize him, probably because he's wearing some sort of funky Egyptian headdress or something. And he doesn't reveal himself. 
instead, he gives them a hard time. He starts interrogating them and even accusing them of being spies. Why? Was Joseph just kind of messing with them, like taking his sweet revenge? Well, probably not, because I think he could have done like a lot worse to them. I think he's asking questions partly to catch up on the latest news, what's happened to his family, his young brother and his dad, if, if he's alive and well. And there's another reason Joseph interrogates them. He wants them to start telling their backstory, that they are all brothers, 12 of them, but one stayed home and the other is no more. They didn't name Joseph by name, but I think this might be the first time in years when they acknowledge what happened that fateful day out in the field when 12 brothers became 11. At that, Joseph decides to give them a few days to reflect in jail. And then the story continues. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. It's really interesting. These brothers find themselves in distress, begging for mercy at the hands of a hard man. You know what they say to each other is, ah, guys, you know why this is happening? It's because of what we did to Joseph. He begged us, remember? Just like we're begging now, but we didn't listen to him. And then Reuben speaks up because on that day, Reuben was the only one who kind of wanted to save Joseph. He had said to the, the brothers, hey, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in this pit. And then he secretly had planned to go back and later rescue him out of the pit. But then before he could do it, Judah talked the other bros to sell Joseph off as a slave instead. And as Simeon got tied up before their eyes, I think they would have remembered how Joseph was tied up, except they were the ones who tied him up, who handed him over to be enslaved in Egypt. It's a terrible memory, one that maybe these ten brothers had conspired for years to cover up, to suppress, to never mention again, even amongst themselves. But at the sight of Simeon tied up like a slave in Egypt, all those memories come roaring back. So why does Joseph put his brothers through this ordeal? Why not just take off his funny Egyptian clothes and say, Look, it's me, Joseph. You guys were really jerks, you know, but now that I'm rich and powerful, I, I got over it, okay? I, I forgive you guys. Like, why drag it out if Joseph intends to accept their repentance anyway? I think it's because Joseph knows that before these brothers can truly repent, they must first recall what they did and who they did it to, to remember and reflect and recognize the harm and the pain they caused, to bring out all this toxic nuclear waste that they had buried under years of denial, the memory of their sins that they had never resolved, so that they could experience a complete repentance. The first step to repentance is always remembering, recalling the facts of what I said, what I did, 
without excuses, without lies. But who likes to do that? Who likes to remember their own wrongs? Who enjoys feeling guilty? On the contrary, our culture tells us that guilt is unhealthy, and anything or anyone who makes you feel guilty must be unsafe, manipulative, even abusive. But could guilt actually be a good thing? Could it be that just as pain is to our body, guilt is to our souls, that it tells us when we've done something to hurt ourselves so that we can get true help and find true healing? When King David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband, God wanted him to repent. But before David could repent, he had to remember, to realize the grand scale of his sin. So God sends the prophet Nathan to tell David a story, a story about a poor shepherd who had a beloved lamb that was slaughtered by a rich man. And no longer David the king, but David the shepherd. He suddenly realizes the wickedness of the rich man in that story and the wickedness of what he himself had done. When Peter denied Jesus three times by the campfire, Jesus wanted him to repent. But before Peter could repent, he had to remember. So the resurrected Jesus comes and builds another campfire and invites Peter to come to stand by that fire to answer the question three times. Peter, do you love me? And Peter has the chance to take back his three denials but first, he had to remember that painful night. As sinners, I think we all have painful memories, things we said and did that we, we try to ignore or forget. But sometimes, despite our best efforts to suppress and deny the truth, it comes back. Maybe through a talk with a friend or visit to a certain place or reading the Word of God or listening to a sermon. Maybe listening to this sermon. And maybe those memories come back. Sometimes we feel as if God is like tormenting us with guilt and shame. And we wonder, why can't God just let the past be the past? Why can't God just forgive and forget? But maybe because God does want to forgive. And that's why he cannot forget. And he cannot let us forget what we've done. Like Joseph, he's got to help us remember. But remembering is just the first step. The next is to respond to what you remember. To do something about it. And Joseph helps his brothers go there too. So he sends them back home to Canaan, minus Simeon, but loaded with food for their families. And when they eventually return to Egypt for more grain, Joseph gives them a hard time again. He has his servant plant a silver cup in the sack of Benjamin, the youngest brother. And after they all set out for home, Joseph sends his servant to intercept them, accuse them of stealing the cup. They deny the charge only to have the cup discovered in Benjamin's sack. And they're all devastated by this strange turn of events, and all of them go back to Egypt to see what punishment awaits them. Now, Joseph, he's still unrecognized by his brothers. He speaks harshly to them once more, accusing them of wrongdoing. Genesis 44. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, 
then as his life is bound up in the boy's life. As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servant will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah speaks up. He's not the oldest, but he was the one who came up with the idea of selling Joseph into slavery. He makes this long speech taking full responsibility. Even though he didn't steal Joseph's cup, Judah says, Let me take the place of Benjamin. I'll be your slave. Please let him go free. Who's Judah thinking about? Benjamin, of course, but also their father, Jacob. Judah's remembering the grief that came over him the day they told him Joseph was killed by wild animals. Judah's imagining what's going to happen if he goes home and tells him that his youngest son is now gone forever too. And maybe for the first time, Judah begins to own what he did to Joseph all those years ago. He says, I shall bear the blame. Judah knows the reason Jacob lost Joseph was him. And while he cannot undo that wrong, maybe he could at least rescue Benjamin for his father's sake. Judah's thinking of way more than just his own troubles. He's thinking of Joseph, of Benjamin, and their father, Jacob. I think so often when we sin, we stay narrowly focused on just what we did, on our own sense of disappointment or guilt or shame. It's what the Bible calls worldly sorrow. It's legalistic, it's bitter, and it's ultimately a self-centered experience. True repentance begins beyond the self with recognizing how we hurt both others and God. You know, Judah, he's in deep distress. He finally understands the distress that Joseph felt. And having seen the sorrow on Jacob's face, imagining the grief that would kill his dad if Benjamin were not to return, Judah finally understands his father's heart. And with the backdrop of Jacob's love, Judah finally sees his sin for the wickedness that it is. And he begins to grieve properly for what he's done. A truly repentant person sees far beyond their own actions and emotions all the way to the Heavenly Father's aching heart. So Judah doesn't just remember the facts. He takes full responsibility by confessing his guilt. And that step of confession is what unlocks the floodgates of Joseph's forgiveness. Right after this speech, Joseph finally, he's remaining composed and he finally loses it. He starts weeping and, and screaming, I am Joseph. I am the brother you sold into Egypt. He takes off his headdress and the brothers don't believe him. He says, come closer, look at me, it's me. And, and they have this tearful and joyful reconciliation and reunion. It's such a beautiful scene, but it took a long time, a lot of distress and anguish and guilt and fear to get to this point of confession and forgiveness. Now, I don't think forgiveness always has to be this complicated, but it often is because like these brothers, I think all of us are so good at suppressing the truth about ourselves. So it takes hard work for us to remember and to respond to the facts of what we've done to reflect on the consequences of our actions on the people we've hurt before we admit our guilt in a plain and simple way. I think that this is why Jesus had to die on the cross. When I'm sharing the gospel, sometimes I meet people who ask me, 
why did Jesus have to die like that? If God wanted us to, to forgive us, why doesn't he just forgive us? How come he went through all the trouble of sending his son to be betrayed and crucified? Why the cross? And I think one answer is that the cross is God's way of helping us to remember and respond to the reality of our sins. Joseph went through a lot of trouble to help his brothers remember the facts of what they did because there's this whole cast of characters, each of whom had their own share in the wrong, and there's a whole lot of denial to overcome. You know, most of these guys just want to kill him plain and simple out of envy. Reuben wanted to rescue him, but, but he failed out of fear. Uh, Judah sold him as a slave j just for the cash, for the money, and Joseph knew all of these, they have to come out for each and every brother to feel truly forgiven. So he set things up with, with the interrogations and the two trips home and the silver cup, all of that, so that they would each have a chance to remember and reflect and own up to what they did. And when we look at the way Jesus died, it's almost like God set things up with this cast of characters who all had a share in the blame of Jesus' death. Characters who look not all that different from each of us. There's the chief priest, they plotted to kill Jesus out of envy, out of jealousy. Pontius Pilate tried to rescue Jesus, but gave up out of fear to protect his own skin instead of doing what's right. Judas, his close friend and disciple, betrayed Jesus for money, just plain greed. And every Passion Week, the days leading up to Good Friday, we as a church take time to think about these characters. We have a chance to see our own envy, cowardice, and greed how I'm not different at all from the people who put Jesus on the cross. And it's not a pleasant time. It, it's a somber time, a time of remembering things I've said or done or even just thought, toxic things that I've maybe kept buried all year, but, but here's a chance to recognize and remember and own up to it. And the wonder is, when I admit my guilt, what I receive is not condemnation, but grace. Just like Judah and the rest of the brothers, once they confessed their wrongs, I don't think they could have believed what they heard with their ears. You know, Joseph wept and hugged them, told them about how God was with him, how he was going to take care of them. He sends them back home to bring the entire clan, including his father, to come and ride out the famine with him. They bring Jacob the, the amazing news of how Joseph's dreams came true. And Jacob and the entire clan of 70 make the journey down to Egypt where they lived happily ever after. Now, it would be nice if that's how the story ended, but it's actually not. Now, things were happy for a time, but after 17 years, Jacob finally dies in peace at a ripe old age. But it turns out the past comes back again to haunt the brothers once more. Genesis chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. So the brothers send a message begging Joseph for mercy again, probably you know, making up this whole thing about how it was Jacob's last wish. Despite many, many years of living under Joseph's favor and protection, their past guilt and shame continue to haunt them. 
Let's see how Joseph responds. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph, he wept. He was grieved because contrary to their suspicions, Joseph did fully, completely forgive them. But it was so hard for them to accept forgiveness, almost as if it's too good to be true. After all the hell they put Joseph through, that he would be so gracious and so magnanimous. It's hard to forgive, but maybe it's even harder to be forgiven and to feel forgiven, to fully accept the good news because, well, sometimes it seems too good to be true. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, humanity has harbored a suspicion against grace. So even after we remember the facts of our sin, even after we respond by confessing our wrong, perhaps the hardest step is the last one, to receive restoration, to embrace grace. Because I, I think we all think God must be like us in a sense. If, if I got treated like I treat God, I would be bitter and resentful. We think God must feel that way about me too. Yet the good news is that God is not like me. Psalm 103 says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So forgiveness and grace are not easy to receive and Maybe, though, that means we must insist to ourselves on the reality of forgiveness, even when we don't feel forgiven. And maybe that's another reason why Jesus had to die the way that he did. God knew that our sins are so grievous and so, so shameful. He knew we would need the ultimate assurance that all of our sins have been considered and pardoned, that somebody took a punishment so unspeakably horrible that nothing we could have done or could ever, ever do, will ever exhaust either the justice or the mercy of the cross. Back to Joseph's story before the big reveal. Judah was ready to take Benjamin's place in slavery so that Benjamin could return home to their grieving father. Now, thankfully, he didn't have to do that. Yet this is exactly what Jesus would ultimately do for us. He would come down from heaven far away to our broken world out of love for the Father to be that pledge for our safety, the price of our redemption, so that you and I can return home. And as we behold Jesus on the cross, the ultimate emblem of suffering and shame, we are right to ask ourselves, why is he up there? Joseph was an innocent man who could have blamed a lot of people for his suffering, yet the words from his own mouth were, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. And in the same way, the cross speaks an even better word that although many meant evil against Jesus, 
God meant it for good, that we might be forgiven, that we might be saved, and to know for sure that we are forgiven. We all have our share in Jesus' suffering and death. Yet what's equally true, and perhaps even more true, is what the Baptist preacher Octavius Winslow once wrote. Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Before we close, I'd like to read for us the words of King David from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we got to look at the conclusion to Joseph's story, and not just his story, but how he led his brothers to repentance, how they must have felt as if their strength was sapped when they kept concealed, um, kept hidden away, the, the guilt, the shame, the memory of their sins. And yet Joseph, the victim wanted so much to forgive them and for them to feel forgiven that he led them step by step to remember, to respond, and to receive grace. Please help us take that hard journey again and again um, and allow you to help us remember what we've done, to admit the truth plainly, and to receive grace and forgiveness even when it feels too good to be true because when we look at the cross, we know that it is true, uh, that you sent your son to take our place, that we might return home to you. Thank you for this good news that never, ever exhausts our reflection, our experience. Um, we thank you again for this time. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.